Winter was here, but we're just getting started on our Game of Thrones rewatch. Here comes episode number three of season one. And now here are the two plump little lords of podcasting. I am Rob Sisperi. Here's Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? I was going to ask you if I look plump to you, just to honor Tyrion's uh, response to that joke, but I don't think I want to hear your true answer. <laughs> I don't know that I could take it. I know what the answer is. He had a great response. <laughs> yeah, you know, Tyrion was really a, a barrel of laughs up there at Castle Black. Uh, not not exactly the funniest place in Westeros, but he was uh, he was bringing the charm. Best Tyrion episode so far. <laughs> It's that's tough, man. I feel like they've all been pretty decent. Um, this was his the hair best. was kind of taking another step back. I thought. <laughs> oh, he went backwards. Yeah, I thought he went back a little bit. Up by the wall, maybe he had like some frosted highlights. <laughs> frosted tips. Oh my god. Yeah, I love the frosted tips. I was a big fan of those my senior year of high school. Frosted tip wiggler was. A Let's thing. not explore that. Let's not <laughs> explore that today. Anyway. Oh God. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yep. Here we are back to rewatch another episode of Game of Thrones. Here, episode number three, Lord Snow. As we are here, going to at least talk about what happened in the episode in our spoiler-free version, and then we will talk about a lot of the things from this episode that, uh, upon further review, with the uh, 2020 green site ends up taking on a bit of a different meaning here in the third episode. Uh, Josh, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Excited to talk about Lord Snow, Jon Snow arriving at Castle Black. And uh, it's just, it's so much fun. Uh, You know, we talked a lot about, uh, you know, kind of the uppity Joffrey last week. Mm -hmm. Uh, Snooty Jon Snow is a great character as well. The whole, I'm better than you. (laughs) I'm so much better than everyone. No one is better than me. I'm Lord Snow. Just a a great version of Jon Snow. One of the things they touch on on the inside look is that there's sort of this dichotomy of the Jon Snow character where he was raised all his life at Winterfell where he was sort of the, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to say redheaded. Uh, I don't want to offend any of our redheaded listeners, but uh, he was basically the odd person out at Winterfell where they talked to him, you bastard, you're the bastard. You can't eat with us. Get out of here, bastard. But now yeah, he was the he was the albino direwolf or, you know, the, the black sheep. Yeah. Of the family, or you the, 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 take the black snow. sheep, right? Yes, <laughs> take the black sheep, and but now he goes to the wall, and everybody's like, "Oh, look who's here! Oh, oh, the John Snow! Oh, the, the you know the greatest guy from Winterfell!" And so that he has never had like just like the normal experience where he's sort of like the outcast in Winterfell because he's a bastard, and then he's like the outcast at the wall because oh, you think you're better than me? Yeah, yeah. He's just like now he's the again. You know, it's where you get the title of the episode he's lord snow he's king bastard basically although to be fair he does think he's better than everybody here as well he does straight up he straight up says it like 20 different times i'm the best there's ever been benjin uncle benjin i'm so much better than all of these people it's it's not a great look, but uh, it tickled me greatly. I thought it was it was really fun to just get kind of a bratty Kit Harrington in the mix here. Right. Also, Jon Snow is coming to terms in this episode about how much it sucks to be at the wall. And it's really just dawning on him for the first time. He had a little bit of the hesitation on the way there in the last episode. But now that he actually sees what goes on here, not what it's cracked up to be. It's not like this on the brochure. <laughs> 
It's not. It's not like that. Uh, it's like uh, when you go touring around the country to look at colleges and you go to a school upstate during the mm-hmm. fall and right. it looks really beautiful on the campus. And then you you sign on and you decide this is where I want to go. And then you go the next year and then you get into the thick of winter and you're like, why? Why didn't I tour the campus during winter? Why did Why did I do this to myself? <laughs> Definitely not speaking from experience. Uh, that's what's going on with Jon Snow. We see him have an encounter with his uncle Benjin up at the wall, uh, who has uh, been with him all along this journey. That Benjin is going to be heading out on a ranging mission, but he wanted to say goodbye to Jon Snow before he left. Jon Snow feels like he's ready to go. Benjin says, uh, "Oh no, that here." At the wall you take what is given to you you literally just got here john snow yeah. you know like you're not just Slow going your on roll. your first it's not you know you don't go on a field trip your first week at school you know you gotta you gotta settle in you gotta take your one-on-ones you gotta at least go through a few classes first uh yeah it's pretty presumptuous of him to think that he could go beyond the wall uh but certainly we already have a sense of some of the dangers that are lurking beyond the wall the very first scene of this whole show makes it pretty clear that there is something pretty grim beyond the wall and uncle benjin is ready to go and check out what that might be all about john is eager to go he's not allowed to go Tyrion is incredulous of whatever might be out there there's a great scene with uncle benjin and Tyrion where we the audience know that benjin is the guy who's on the right side of this and Tyrion, for all of the books that he's reading refuses to believe in anything resembling uh the white walker myth he's just completely he's out skeptic. on the subject we will see a lot of ned and cat in king's landing in this episode first we see ned having an interaction with jamie and jamie tells the story about how ned's dad and brother ended up dying in this very throne room yeah so i think that this is a good point to stop down and just deliver a little bit of history uh of where we are at this point in the show and at this point in westeros jamie is referring to the fact that uh, as we already know at this point there used to be targaryens sitting on the iron throne danny's family daenerys targaryen's family uh, and the Mad King was overthrown over the course of Robert's rebellion. And Jamie Lannister was the guy who delivered the fatal blow to the Mad King heiress, who was threatening a lot of destruction. And before all of that, the thing that really incited all of this violence, which we're learning in this episode, is that the Mad King had Ned Stark's father and brother killed. Uh, they were both murdered in this throne room, and Jamie was there to witness it. And Jamie, who has earned his reputation as the Kingslayer, which we hear a little bit more about in this episode, is, I don't know, maybe in his way offering some kind of sympathy, uh, you know, some sort of semblance of a condolence to Ned in this moment. But Ned really does not seem to be having it. Really, the relationship between these two guys, it's pretty tense. Yeah. I mean, Jamie does say it felt like justice. And Ned, of course, the honorable Ned Stark, can't get over the fact that Jamie, a sworn knight of the Kingsguard, ends up not only killing the king, but also stabbing him in the back with a sword. And so those are two major no-nos in Ned Stark's mind, no matter what happened leading up to that point. 
Yes, and not of the Marquesan variety. <laughs> right. And also, of course, uh, that I'm not sure if the uh, show has explored this too much yet to this point, but a big moment to have Ned and Jamie meet up in uh, said throne room because as uh, eventually we will learn in that backstory that Jamie, after killing the Mad King, was sitting on the Iron Throne. Ned was one of the people that uh, came and walked in and saw Jamie sitting on the throne. So that really left a bad taste in Ned. Ned's mouth in the moments following the murder of the Mad King. Yeah, so I think it's an evocative image for Ned to be walking back into King's Landing for the first time in forever. Uh, and the very first thing is he's getting called to a small council meeting. And on his way, he sees the Kingslayer sitting in the throne room, much as he saw him many, many moons before. Um, not for nothing, too. Ned doesn't even get like a pee break. He's not allowed, like, just, like, some time off. He just has to go straight to the to the small council meeting. That feels that feels difficult. That feels like a lot to throw at the guy. Right. I mean, he has been traveling for a month. Yeah, I feel like, you know, give the guy a nap at least. Show him his house. The small, the small council meeting can wait. But uh, I guess this is the role of the hand. Uh, you know, uh, this, is, this is what the hand of the king has to do. There's no sleep for the hand. That's what they say. And we get to see the small council meeting in the introduction of a number of the members of the small council, including Varys, uh, that he is the spider, the master of whispers. Uh, he is sort of uh, the TMZ of King's Landing. He knows everything that's going on there. <laughs> yes, yes. Renly, who's actually the brother of Robert Baratheon, uh, the King Robert. Uh, we meet Littlefinger, who has this backstory with Cat Stark or Cat Tully uh, and was quite uh, fond of her as a young person and uh, got into a memorable duel with uh, Ned's brother, Brandon, which left him with a scar. And then also Maester Pycelle the maester of King's Landing. The Grand Maester, Pycelle, indeed. Uh, yeah, it's quite a roundup here that we're seeing, and Ned Stark's feelings towards these guys. It really, uh, much like uh, the spy master's name, it varies. You know, he is uh, he is fond of some of them. He seems to really be fond of Renly, who is Robert Baratheon's brother. They go back a little ways. Ned has never met Littlefinger before, but clearly over the course of this episode, he's going to show some mistrust for this guy, not a big fan, even with Catelyn vouching for him. Uh, and it doesn't seem like Littlefinger is the biggest Ned Stark fan either. What's the line he says? Uh, Stark's quick tempers, uh, you know, not great thinkers, something along those lines. So we're starting to see a little bit of the uh, the different shades of the dynamics within the small council. And we're also getting a little bit of uh, a taste of what it might be like to get some of that, you know, that northern charm here in the south in King's Landing. You know, the Stark are very serious people they uh they are uh, they're you know very uh very thrifty you know very frugal they're not exactly the types that are going to be psyched to be uh you know spending eighty thousand coins on a joust in mm -hmm. your honor this is not something that Ned is really feeling. Uh, so it's definitely a new King's Landing is starting to kick up here now that Ned is in town. Yeah, Littlefinger says uh, the Starks, great tempers, slow minds. Yeah, slow minds. Slow minds indeed. So that is uh, established here by Littlefinger. We also see Ned 
talking with Arya, he finds out about the sword needle that John has given her. Uh, amazing how he has not yet seen uh, this sword that she's been smuggling for over a month on the road uh, with Ned, but he finally catches it. Uh, he ends up sort of being concerned that she has this sword and ends up signing her up for uh, not dancing lessons, but sword play lessons from Serial Pharrell. Water dancing. Water you know, dancing. It's a type of it's a type of dance. You know, it counts, I guess. Uh, I was really surprised that Arya just answered the door with the sword in her hand. Like she wasn't concerned at all that she was going to get grounded and have the sword taken away. Yeah, I don't know what Ned's grounding policy is. He's not much of a grounder, not much for not much for discipline. He's just encouraging his youngest daughter to become a trained fighter. He looks a little concerned about it at the end when we finally meet Sirio Farrell, the uh, the great water dancer of Bravos, who is training Arya Stark. And Arya, even though she, you know, she keeps um, misstepping and Sirio keeps saying, oh, you're dead. You're very dead. Now you're super dead uh, with every every single strike. It does seem like she's you know, taking to it fairly quickly. And Ned seems a little concerned about that. You know, that's the final note of the episode is him watching the water dancing. And there's the clanging of swords going on in his mind. Um, so it makes you wonder if he is starting to regret, maybe I should have disciplined her here. Maybe I shouldn't have encouraged this habit. Yeah, maybe just a little bit. We get the long sequence of Arya with Sirio uh, learning a little bit about sword play. I want to ask you a little bit about what's going on with Joffrey and Cersei in this episode that we see Cersei uh, offering Joffrey some counsel. Offering some counsel, offering some other stuff. Honestly, like the the things that she's telling him he can have. This is not really um, you know, this doesn't seem like normal parenting. I'm not a parent, so I I can't I can't say whether or not that this is normal. It seems like odd behavior. Then again, I think that we've established that the uh the Lannisters relationship with sex sexuality. It's uh, it's confusing at best. Yeah, she says to Joffrey if you don't want to have Sansa in your bed, if you would prefer painted whores. Now, what are they painted as? <laughs> I don't know. It's like uh is it like Halloween like painting? a cosplay like, thing it, like body yeah. paint? Yeah, we could, you know, we could get some good body painters here. We could, you know, paint you up as uh, as Klingons. I don't know, whatever, you know, some sort of Star Wars alien. Yeah, uh, whatever, whatever you're into, Joffrey. We're rich. We're the we're the you know, we're the royal family. We can we can uh, get our kinks however we want. Sure. Whatever you need, Joffrey. So uh, we'll talk more about that in terms of uh, Cersei's advice for Joffrey uh, coming up in a little bit. And big news uh, from the East, Josh that Daenerys Targaryen is with child and according to Danny it's a boy you know considering that he is the TMZ of Westeros I'm surprised that Varys didn't break this news like you would think that he would be the one who could just like you know find that out before anybody else yeah big news and uh, Danny is now with child we also see her get into a, a little bit of a scuffle with Viserys that we see Danny stop the Kalisar for the first time and then Viserys is like really upset They're like what are you doing why I don't take 
orders from you or anybody, and then uh, he is very quickly brought back down to Earth. I think that this is a very exciting moment, the scene in which Viserys kind of gets his butt handed to him. You know, we've seen, uh, you know, in, in episode two, we saw Tyrion delivering the smackdown to Joffrey. We saw Joffrey get taken down by the direwolf. So it's not the first time that we're seeing, like, a bratty royal person get their comeuppance, but it is the first time we're seeing that happen to Viserys, who has been pretty cruel to Daenerys so far, both in action and his words. So to see him get thrown around by the Dothraki, it's uh, it's pleasurable. It made it made me happy at the very least to see this. Yeah, it's a nice moment and uh, very excited to see Danny get the upper hand on her brother after how horribly he has treated her through those uh, first two episodes. Josh, uh, anything else of note that you want to uh, set up plot wise before we get into our spoilers? No, I think that, you know, this is the this is the those are the major beats of the episode. Catelyn comes to King's Landing and she reunites with Littlefinger, who is somebody that she knows from her childhood. And we're starting to get a little bit of forward momentum on the whole mystery of who tried to kill Bran Stark. And Littlefinger offers up some information that really seems to condemn the Lannisters, that the Valyrian dagger once belonged to him. Littlefinger used to possess this thing, but he lost it in a bet to Tyrion Lannister, uh, which would seemingly implicate the imp uh, as the man who tried to have Bran killed. But we've been hanging out with the imp for a little while now. Do you see him as the kind of guy that would try to kill a little kid? So it, it causes all sorts of cognitive dissonance here, but the mystery is starting to to be you know brought into the light a little bit more and the plot is thickening for sure and i'm sure it's going to be a thread that we're going to follow down as we're charting our way through season one okay so at this point we are going to get into talking about spoilers from future episodes of game of thrones so of course uh watch out for okay three buzzes that's for spoilers and now let's get into it and josh uh let's start our conversation with that said dagger, because uh, there are some things here that still do not add up in terms of the plot thickens in terms of trying to figure out what is really going on here. Yeah. So we're still trying to figure out exactly what the heck is going on. You know, through seven seasons of Game of Thrones, we no longer have a little finger. Little finger has been taken out. And it would seem that the show wanted us to believe that little finger was the guy who did indeed hire the assassin to take out Bran Stark. We know that it's his dagger by his own admission. We talked a little bit about this last week. Of what what would the plan have been? You know, what was Littlefinger trying to do here? How did this episode clarify things for you? Or did it really just muddy the waters even further for you? No, it just muddied the waters even more because we have Littlefinger here talking about how, yeah, oh, I know whose uh, dagger that is. It was mine. And we say, What? Well, it turns out that, yes, I lost it in a bet against Tyrion Lannister, and I had bet on Sir Jaime while Tyrion bet on, who, the Knight of Flowers? Did I have this right? Yes, yes, Sir Loras. Sir Loras. So Tyrion bet against Jaime in some sort of a tournament? And ultimately, we had where Littlefinger ended up losing the bet by betting on Jamie to Tyrion. So, Josh, uh, I have the clip. Let's listen to it and then see if this helps make any more sense. Valerian Steel. Do you know whose dagger this is? I must admit I do not. 
Well, well, this is an historic day. Something you don't know that I do. There's only one dagger like this in all of the Seven Kingdoms. It's mine. Yours? At least it was, until the tournament on Prince Joffrey's last name day. I bet on Sir Jamie in the jousting, as any sane man would, when the Knight of the Flowers unseated him. I lost this dagger. To whom? Tyrion Lannister. The Imp. Okay, so we have Littlefinger saying that he did bet on Tyrion. We don't know if this bet actually took place. If we could interview Tyrion, I'd like to ask him that question. Well, maybe that's part of uh, what helps this out. And I do believe there's going to be a moment later on in the series, uh, in this season, in fact. This is the disadvantage of not watching ahead in our rewatch and this not being quite so fresh. But if I'm remembering right, I do think Tyrion eventually says to Catelyn, like, yo, that's bull. There's no way I would ever bet against my brother. Um, so that helps the story out a little bit, I think. I think that that does, you know, it does make it seem more like it's a fiction, uh, that it's something that Littlefinger is getting a detail wrong because he's underestimating Tyrion's loyalty to his own brother. Um, so actually, I think that's a point in the favor of Littlefinger being the Dagger Man. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of points against Littlefinger being uh, the Dagger Man. It's just that for a guy who we talk about as being a hundred steps ahead of everything, it would be like if I had a handgun that was registered to me and then I was going to have a hit done on somebody, I, I probably would not give the my handgun to the hitman so that I could frame somebody else for the murder and say, oh, no, 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 it was my gun. You're right. That, that is my gun. But I lost it in a bet to Josh Wiggler recently. And uh, that's so it's so technically now it's his. Um, first of all, thank you for uh, for the gift. Uh, secondly, I think that one of the things that perhaps we need to evaluate as we're going along here is knowing where this story is going to end for Lord Peter Baelish. That perhaps he is overhyped as, you know, perhaps he isn't as cunning as he gets uh, hyped up as exactly like maybe it is, you know, maybe we should cool our jets a little bit in thinking that Littlefinger is such a genius. Um, I still think the jury's out in terms of book Littlefinger. I think, you know, we don't know what his schemes are. We don't know what his ultimate plans are, though I can't imagine that he's going to be much more successful in the books than he was on the show. But it doesn't work out for Littlefinger, and he's ultimately taken out by something he really should have seen coming, especially for a guy who says, I've seen every single outcome. Nothing could surprise me. And then he's completely blindsided in his final moments by something that should have at least been a predictable outcome. Uh, so I think that with, with that in mind, we shouldn't be completely floored if some of Littlefinger's plans are actually really, really bad. And he's just kind of improbably lucky that it works out for him as long as it does. Right. So I think that we have to, A, walk back how much of a master strategist Littlefinger was along the way. And two, maybe upgrade how dumb we thought the Starks were along the way. Because they really <laughs> do not question a lot of these things. They say, really? That's so weird. Why would they think that? All right. So this, this, episode, this episode is a bad look for Catelyn Stark. Uh, where she's like, I trust Littlefinger completely. There's 
just no way he would ever do anything that wasn't in my interest. Uh, not that I think that we necessarily think of Catelyn Stark as the shrewdest person on the show by any stretch of the imagination, but that's a that's a real miscalculation. Where she's like, "Yo, Ned, you can absolutely trust Littlefinger. Yes. Like, I trust him completely with my life." Well, she also is saying like, "Oh, I know the Lannisters were behind this. I, I feel it in my bones. Trust me. I have my gut is telling me it's definitely the Lannisters." I will say in Cat's defense that I believe that when Ned says to her, uh, you know, Kat, uh, he still is in love with you. I think that she feels like, yeah, I know I got this. I I think that she is under the impression that she is able to manipulate Littlefinger based on the feelings that she knows that he still holds for her. Yeah, I think that that's right. Uh, I think that she's underestimating Littlefinger for sure here, uh, that she thinks that this guy has just got his undying loyalty to her still from their time when they were children together. Um, But that's a mistake. That's a mistake. Although, you know, he is deeply devoted to Catelyn Stark. Uh, He still, you know, harbors all of those fantasies of we are going to, you know, we are going to one day be together. And, you know, I think that that is very much still on his mind. Um, I just think that she doesn't understand that that comes part and parcel with the fact that he is going to be conspiring against her family in order to make this thing possible. So it's not great. Um, Another funny moment in the Catelyn Stark department in this episode is her final scene with Ned where they're, you know, they're not going to see each other ever again. They don't know that. That's funny. Well, that's not the funny part. The funny part is Ned being like, don't do anything crazy when you go out on the road. You know, you've got that insane temper of yours. You're very impulsive. And the very next thing, you know, like the the next really big note we're going to get from Catelyn Stark is going to be the end of next week's episode Mm -hmm. when she just decides to, you know, pull off a citizen's arrest on Tyrion Lannister and essentially kick off the war for the the five kings. Uh, So, you know, the one time that Ned Stark is actually delivering some truly sage wisdom if Catelyn had listened to him in that moment maybe none of this would have happened yeah cat stark uh that it was just to watch that temper that's really what it comes watch down the to. temper the great <laughs> yes, temper yes. and slow mind of the star she may be a tully but she is really married <laughs> to that stark family yes much like marge simpson she adopted all of the stark's dna when she married into the family josh we have the first appearance of serial pharrell here in this episode i know that it is a long-held theory by some that serial pharrell is actually a jack and hagar that they are one in the same is there anything that you saw that speaks to that theory Absolutely not. Uh, (laughs) I am completely out on that theory. There are people who really do hold on to the idea that Sirio Pharrell is still out there because we're not going to see him die. We're going to see his final scene where he is fighting off members of the Kingsguard and Lannister loyalists, but we're not actually going to see the body. And that does, you know, leave some wiggle room. You know, it does leave you a little bit of space for interpretation of what may have happened to Sirio Pharrell. But I've always been a believer that that's really more just for, you know, the dramatic effect of the moment. And it's more of a question in Arya's mind, perhaps. I don't think that there's any chance that Sirio is still out there. But I think 
um, you know, going back and, and watching this character arrive in Game of Thrones for the very first time, seeing him after many moons away, uh, you know, this character is not even going to make it out of this first season. Uh, it did make me wonder, like, what would Game of Thrones look like with a character like Sirio Pharrell still on the board at this point? Like, can you even imagine him in season seven? He's such like a, a vibrant character. Like, there's just like so much personality to this guy. I think too much personality for the winter is here ethos of the modern Game of Thrones. Sirio Pharrell was very fun. He calls Arya boy repeatedly. Did you read anything into this? I mean, by the end of this season, Arya will then be cutting her hair off, or I guess at the start of the season two, uh, and will try to uh, give off the appearance that she is, in fact, a boy. Arya's identity has always been something that the show has played with between no one, but here Sarah Farrell only calls her boy. Yeah, I think that it's really, um, it's an early, uh, it's an early note in that journey for her. Uh, there is this arc for Arya of, is she no one? And if she's no one, who is she? Uh, where you just are never really sure exactly who Arya is, what she is supposed to be, and you get the sense that Arya herself is incredibly confused about it as well. Uh, and I think that it starts here with, um, I think it, I mean, it's already started, but I think that this is a way to clarify that theme for Arya, that she's just not easy to pin down. She is not somebody who you can really define. Putting Arya in a box is not something that's easy to do. Uh, certainly many people have tried to kill her and put her in a box and that has not worked out. So I think that that's really what we're getting here. And I think that it's, it's something that is going to be echoed later in this very season where she's going to meet up with Yorin, who we met in this ep- uh, in this episode for the first time, uh, and she is going to be recruited into the Night's Watch fold, if only as a ploy to get her out of King's Landing and get her out of immediate danger. So uh, I think we're just we're starting to see like early shades of, of that storyline come together. So I want to touch on the uh, Joffrey and Cersei scene from early in the episode where we see Joffrey being very impulsive, talking about how he wants to take the North and Cersei talking him out of it. I'm interested to know your opinion on this, knowing that Cersei eventually one day will sit on the Iron Throne herself. Do you feel like was season one Cersei seeming like a better leader or was she more naive and has she adopted the Joffrey worldview by season seven? Yeah, I was actually kind of, uh, I was thinking on this earlier today as I was watching the episode where it's like, you sound very wise here. Like, I wish that you would take your own advice a little bit. You can't just, like, murder an entire section of Westeros. You can't just take this Why? over by pure Why force. Not? I can. <laughs> Why not? I want, I'm the king. <laughs> I, can, I can and I will. Uh, but there's, there's just, uh, you know, even thinking about that further, though, Sure, she definitely has has burned as many people as she possibly can in her path towards power. Uh, you know, everything with the Sept of Baylor, for instance, and uh, the way that she has dealt with many of her enemies along the way. But I think that um, a lot of what she is saying here to Joffrey about, like, you have to be quiet and cunning and you have to wait out your opponent and you have to strike when they least expect it. I think that that's what she's trying to exercise right now on Game of Thrones in 
those final moments that she has with Jamie Lannister in season seven, where she is saying to him, um, you don't really think that I'm going to, you know, team up with the Targaryens and the Starks, do you? Like, I'm going to let them take over, you know, this fight. And then when they're weak, that's when we're going to swoop in and we're going to fight. We're just pretending to be cooperating right now. So I think actually this is kind of an interesting, um, uh, I think this is an interesting throwback uh, watching this scene given where we know where Cersei is going, because I think she's actually kind of projecting her own future policy to some degree. Right. And in her talking about to Joffrey, you know, why are the Northerners going to fight for you? It really does echo where Jamie in the season premiere of season seven is talking to Cersei, where she's saying that she rules the seven kingdoms. And Jamie's like, well, probably three at best right now. I don't know who is going to ultimately, you know, fight your wars for you. And so uh, it's been an interesting sort of uh, evolution for Cersei. The evolution of Cersei coming your way in T-E-O-C. the fall. T-E-O-C. <laughs> That's right. It's going to be a great book. Yeah. It'll be great. Uh, 300 hours of Cersei Lannister. That's it. Right. I want to go up to Winterfell, Josh. And of course, uh, that we see uh, Bran officially now in this episode. He woke up at the end of the last episode. We saw him now conscious for the first time. And so he is in bed and old Nan is talking to him. First, uh, we have the appearance of a raven on the windowsill there. So, of of course, uh, very ominous looking back now at that. But Old Nan is talking to Bran about uh, some of her stories and uh, what types of stories does he want to hear. And ultimately, she ends up telling him a bunch of stories about the long night and the White Walkers. And of course, uh, these stories will be very important to Bran. Do you take anything away from these stories from Old Nan? It's a it's a bleak portrait of the future. You know, if this is kind of what's coming to pass. And I and I do think that this is this is something worth talking about with this episode where there are a lot of the warnings about winter is coming and what that might mean. And we know that this summer has lasted a very long time. I think they say seven years, nine years at one point in this episode um, when Tyrion is talking to Maester Aemon. Great to see Maester Aemon, by the way, for the first time in a long while. Uh, and there is this line from Maester Aemon where he is talking about how the the winter that's coming is going to be one of the worst we've ever seen. Um, and when you juxtapose that with the old Nan story and she's talking about what the White Walkers have done and what the White Walkers are capable of and how in the past they would ride on ice spiders, Rob. Uh, please, God, if we do not get ice spiders in the final season of Game of Thrones, I'm going to rebel. I'm going to be very upset about that. But she's talking about how they would just like ride through and destroy cities and they really just had free reign of the Seven Kingdoms. And if that where we're going you know winter is coming and it's been established so quickly so early on in game of thrones what the threat could be um that it make it does make you stop and wonder like just how bad is this going to get like you want to believe that the heroes are going to win the day ultimately but for winter to really have this and you know the the high stakes that are being established here for it to really meet up to that level you got to think like could we be in for like some kind of time jump at some point in the final season of the show where we are seeing just how far along the White Walkers have gone? 
I don't know. It was very it was very alarming to hear this story, though, for sure. I had watched a YouTube video. I, you know, I like to watch these YouTube videos about these different uh, Game of Thrones theories. And I want to uh, cite my source here. And I watched so many. I hope that I'm getting it right. But I believe it was the Last Harpy YouTube channel has a very interesting theory about old Nan's stories. And are they not of things that happened long ago? But if we somehow get the time traveling brand back in the picture, maybe if he is indeed brand the builder, are old Nan's stories actually things that are yet to come, yet brand has lived them, and then these stories get passed down through the ages as tall tales, which ultimately become the stories that brand hears as a kid? I mean, it's very heady to think about that. Not even Lena heady. It's just very cerebral to think about that as a possibility. But I think that the the hold the door of it all, the whole Hodor scene uh, and what his fate ultimately was, it does make you think about what are the, the ramifications of Bran's powers? And is that just like an early instance and like a fairly minor example in the grand scheme of things of what could be in store for his future? And how much does that involve the past? Uh, it's an interesting theory. Uh, and it's certainly, a, a, again, like a very bleak portrait of the future. If that's where it's going, if that's Bran somehow going back in time and, you know, warning the future self that there is this horrible thing coming and I've seen it and it's not a myth. It's what we're driving towards. Um, I don't think it's off the table. I think it would be very complicated to execute on the show. Uh, that's again, it's more of a story that I could see happening in the book. Right. I think with the show, we've only got six episodes, so I really don't know how we get there yeah. unless like, you know, in the third episode of the final season, like, could all be lost? Like, could everything be just like totally in disarray? And then suddenly you have some sort of time jump where, you know, that's something that's been baked into the premise of Game of Thrones um, from from the beginning into A Song of Ice and Fire, that George R. R. Martin's original plan was a trilogy of books. And there was going to be a very significant time jump where the kids age uh, and they grow up and we're now following their grown up adventures. And that's really never happened in the books. And on the show, they've kind of aged along with the show. So years have taken place on the show where they really haven't in the books. Um, but I wonder if that's not an impossible, you know, potential outcome that we could be driving towards where there's some sort of future time jump. And we are going to see what life is like in the White Walker culture, which would be very, very scary indeed. Uh, also with that, that actually the things like the last hero is actually Jon Snow. And then that story is passed along if you want to really go down uh, that specific rabbit hole. Although, just to poo-poo a little bit of Nan's stories, uh, Rob Stark comes in and talks to Bran and, uh, you know, old Nan is, uh, you know, telling Bran these stories and Rob Stark says, uh, old Nan once told me the sky is blue because we live in the eye of a big giant, a uh, blue-eyed giant named McCumber. Are we buying the McCumber theory? Are you, uh, yeah, I was just going to say, are you out on McCumber? Because I feel like that's a pretty popular, universally agreed upon theory of the thesis behind A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. You know, Rob, <laughs> speaking of McCumber and speaking of a giant with a blue eye that we're all living inside, could it be a tell that one of the very first things you see in season seven of Game of Thrones is the White Walkers and their army of the dead marching toward the camera? And what is the final figure that we see in that march toward the camera a giant with 
one eye missing? Is that blue eye somewhere out in the universe? And are we living inside of it? McCumber. <laughs> 30 seconds of McCumber. <laughs> He's a big blue giant and he lives north of the wall. McCumber. McCumber. <laughs> yeah. I like it. I'm oh in. my God. I'm in. Yeah. I'm in on McCumber. I'm all the way down on McCumber. Yeah. It's McCumber's fault that the wall has fallen. Of course. Uh, very resourceful. That giant. Okay. Josh, uh, then should we touch on what's going on in the East with Daenerys? Because uh, this is very exciting to have her for the first time end up getting the best of Viserys. What what I'd like to talk about here, uh, number one, uh, that we have the first appearance of the stallion who will mount the world as uh, Danny is pregnant. Had the stallion who would mount the world made it to the world, how do you think it would have gone for him? I don't know. That would have been, you know, we've been talking about some real hotheads here on Game of Thrones so far between Viserys and Joffrey and even Lord Snow is a little bit puny and, and you know, spiteful in this episode. I got to imagine that the child of a Targaryen and a Dothraki warlord would have been insufferable, <laughs> would have just been a disaster to be around. That being said, can you imagine the hair? Oh my. Yeah. Like I with the long silver braid, that would have been impressive. That really would have been something. Did Khal Drogo need to die for the dragons to be born? Could we be talking about a universe in which Daenerys, Khal Drogo, the stallion who mounts the world, eventually become the three dragon riders? Wow. Oh my gosh. Well, I do think that, you know, one of the interpretations, I think one of the popular interpretations of the dragons being born is that it does involve the blood sacrifice and that is uh both the death of daenerys's child and called drogo as well as the uh the witch that gets burned whose name i never am able to pronounce so i'm not even going to try here uh miri mazdur i think oh god uh it's not not great not great um i think that i think that they probably had to go in order for the dragons to be in the world and the baby idea yeah, and the idea of Khal Drogo riding on Viserion or on Rhaegal and just lighting up the fields of Westeros, I just don't feel like he would have had the restraint to really rein that in. Mm-hmm. It would have just been a true reign of fire, and it would have been very bad for everybody involved. So I think that the the world is a better place uh, without Khal Drogo in it, unfortunately. Now, in terms of Viserys... Did he really think through this plan ultimately where he was going to marry off his sister to Khal Drogo and then ultimately they were going to ride off into Westeros? Did he really feel like Khal Drogo was going to take his men into this great battle for his brother-in-law? I mean, I think he did. Uh, and I think that you're going to, you know, again, the way that uh, we're looking back at Littlefinger and we have to like kind of cool our interpretation of Littlefinger. I don't think that anybody's really looking at Viserys and thinking that this was a guy who really had it figured out. He really had it all together. He's going to get his comeuppance very, very soon in what I think is one of the greatest episodes of the season. So we're on a fast track towards that. So, no, I don't think it's such a shock to think that maybe Viserys really severely miscalculated here and thought that just the fact that he's the king he's going to be able to get whatever he wants and i actually think that it's kind of interesting to to juxtapose that against um the scene between joffrey and cersei in this same episode where joffrey's like they'll bow to me but 
because I'm their king. Uh, and that's exactly the ethos that Viserys has brought to the Dothraki, where he's like, you guys have to do what I say. I'm your king. But like, what are you really? Like, are you really the king of anything? Or are you just some dude who we can knock off his high horse, literally, mm-hmm. and pour molten, you know, metal onto your head and give you the crown that you've been demanding? So, you know, it's a cautionary tale for a lot of the, the petulance that we see across many of these characters in the show is what you get through Viserys. And it's really fun to revisit that. It's My only regret is I think that Harry Lloyd as Viserys Targaryen gets lost in the conversation of like the great uh, bad guys who you just loved to hate, who you just rooted against. Because he's only around here for so long. He's here very quickly, uh, and then he's off the map. And I think that he turns in such a great performance. He's such a sniveling little coward. Uh, and everything in this episode was just spectacular in that regard. Okay, Josh, uh, let's do some quick hits and bounce around. What were some other things that stood out to you in this episode? Uh, great to see uh, Bobby B yeah. and Barry the B in the same scene together. That was fun. Our first Barristan the Bold sighting. I would say uh, I think Jamie Lannister has proven to be a character that I am really enjoying watching on the rewatch. Um, because again, I think that scene between between him and Ned Stark at the top of the episode. Yeah, he's a little bit scummy, like he's a little bit of a jerk. But I think that what he's saying there is like, I killed the Mad King because what he did to your brother and your dad was really so despicable. And it's really Ned who's like, you stabbed a king in the back. You're a jerk. It's like, dude, if you think about what he's trying to tell you, like there may have been an opportunity here for the two of you guys to, if not become friends, at least be civil towards one another. So I think that just in the ongoing quest of like looking back at Jamie Lannister's arc and was he always such a rogue? Was he always such a bad guy? I think that there are shades of the Jamie we know and love today, even in this early uh, stage of Game of Thrones. That Robert Baratheon scene is also really great, especially with the first appearance of Lance Lannister, where Robert is really <laughs> roasting yeah. him of like, who named you? What a stupid name. Uh, who came up with that? A half wit with a stutter? Yes. <laughs> Poor Lancel Lannister. He's going to have a rough ride on Game of Thrones. But when it comes to Robert Baratheon, Lancel will have the last laugh. He tells a great story also of the first person that he killed and what they don't tell you about the first person you kill, the stuff they leave out of the songs. Uh, that's really great. And also him with Lancel Lannister about uh, the wine pitcher being empty and he says, uh, what do you mean it's empty? He's like, I, I mean, there's there's no more wine. And he's like, I know what that means. <laughs> yeah, I know what empty means, Lancel. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Also, the first person Robert Baratheon ever killed was a Tarly. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's a you know, that's a, an early sign of my man, Sam. He's starting to starting to gain some traction here in the Game of Thrones universe. I think that he's going to show up as soon as next episode, maybe the episode after. Yeah. And we don't know exactly what the relation was to a Randall or Dickon or Sam, uh, the Tarly that Robert Baratheon ended up uh, no. knocking off. No, but, you know, uh, the description of this Tarly uh, really does align with what we get from the Tarleys who aren't Sam, like this guy who is just like foolishly picking the wrong side of the war. Uh, Like it really did. Like it just sounded like Dickon Tarly, uh, the character that Robert was describing. 
One of the things uh, that was fun to watch that we see the last time that John and Benjin will get together from my recollection. And again, Benjin gives Jon Snow the famous words. Uh, we'll speak when I get back. Well, he's not wrong. I mean, they did exchange like a word, you know, the right. last time that Benjamin and John ever saw each other, but not exactly the conversation Jon Snow was hoping for. There is so much um, loaded in to Benjamin's disappearance, you know, where, you know, we're not going to see him again for such a long time. And that was such a mystery for so long that I do think that it's one of those things now that we can kind of uh, sort of like reverse close the loop on that it's it's one of the least satisfying arcs of the series for me i think uh just to, to go back and get as much benjamin as we're gonna get uh until the cold hand stuff it's really you know there's there's so much like we're gonna talk we're gonna figure it out there's a lot of anticipation that is set up in his first few scenes of the series his only scenes of the series up until season six uh and it's just it's never really quite paid off i don't think so that's a bummer I do think that the worst job in all of the Night's Watch is the elevator guy who has to uh, turn that wheel round and round to send people up there. We have one moment where <laughs> Jon Snow goes to the elevator. I think if I was the elevator, this is my impression of me as the elevator guy at the wall where Jon Snow walks the elevator. Like, do you really need do you need to go up? Do you need that? This you have to go up there. I mean, Jon Snow just walks there. He doesn't even say to the guy like, "Hey, do you mind uh, taking me up to the top?" He just goes and stands there like it's a regular elevator. That's not this Flintstones thing that a guy has to turn the crank and send Jon Snow what seven hundred feet up into the air. How annoyed do you think the elevator guy was when Tyrion's like, yeah, can you uh, take me to the top of the wall? I just really got to use the bathroom. We've got bathrooms at Castle Black. What are you doing? Yeah, but to make up for it, I mean, uh, Tyrion is like a walk in the park in terms of, you know, putting somebody up for an elevator ride. Well, that depends. Do you think that he's looking a little plump these days? <laughs> it depends how plump he is looking. Also, yeah. we see Tyrion decide to use the wall as a bathroom. I would be really, you know, standing much further back uh, in terms of, I mean, there is that one spot. I think that's where they, they like dump pitch off the top of it. In addition to uh, what Tyrion was dropping off the top of it. That seems like the most dangerous spot on the wall. But that's what he said. He wanted to stand on the edge of the world and, and use the bathroom. So he's just, you know, fulfilling his destiny. I was more concerned that John shakes his hand afterwards. I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, right. But one gust of wind. <laughs> I guess all yeah. over. No, that would be the end. That would be it. That would be it. But what a way to go. Oh my God. Legendary. Yeah. And one other thing at the wall that I want to watch out for, and this was actually something that my wife mentioned to me in her own Game of Thrones uh, rewatch that she's very into this, Josh. Uh, I love this. This makes me so happy. She wanted to know, does Maester Aemon have any suspicion that, Aegon Targaryen, a.k.a. Jon Snow, is a Targaryen? This is a great question. Um, and I wouldn't be shocked if he did, uh, because I think, you know, that could make some sense for why Ned would feel comfortable sending Jon to the wall, because there's already a Targaryen up there who could have a watchful eye on Jon. Well, um, maybe not an eye. Well, sure, sure, sure. An ear or two. Certainly he would have his back. He would be looking out for the guy as Certainly best as he could. Certainly not the eye of McCumber the Giant. 
no, no, but who has that? I mean, gosh, uh, we should all be so fortunate as to live inside the eye of McCumber the Giant. Um, no, I think that that's a great idea. I think that's a great call. Um, there's a little bit more elaboration in, uh, in the books, I think, of Aemon's thoughts on the Targaryens and the final Targaryens and everything like that. But of course, he is, uh, he does pass away both in the books and on the show before we get any sort of advancement, um, of this storyline. So I, I don't know how far, uh, down the rabbit hole we want to go with that, but I like the idea that Ned would trust John at the wall because Maester Eamon was there. Yeah, and Maester Eamon and John have not had a scene yet together in the show, but just something to be on the watch for as we move totally. forward. Josh, anything else from episode number three, Lord Snow? No, um, you know, I was looking back at my episode rankings that currently exist on The Hollywood Reporter. As I mentioned last week, I'm going to do some reshuffling, potentially, of my episode rankings as we're going here. And I do think that Lord Snow so far is the bottom-ranked episode of Game of Thrones for me through three I- episodes episodes of the show, but I have it really low in my episode rankings. I have it as the 60th out of 67 episodes. Oh, wow. That feels... That feels so harsh. Uh, is, that, is that just a testament to the fact that Game of Thrones is incredible? Or am I just being obscenely harsh on Lord Snow? I mean, this is not a bad episode. I feel like that is, is the weakest of the three. I mean, there's not really a dramatic high point. It's really, there's a lot of talking scenes. I mean, most of these Game of Thrones episodes end on, if not a cliffhanger, but some sort of like an action sequence. This ends on Ned watching Arya spar with Sirio Pharrell, which I think is actually one of the softer endings of any Game of Thrones episode. So I think that you're probably in the right ballpark. Maybe you move it up a couple of spots, but I think that your first ranking is probably the correct one. Okay, cool. I I feel better because I looked at it today. I was like, wow, that's so harsh. But then it made me think, you know, Game of Thrones is just, you know, it's pretty good you know <laughs> even like it's 60th yeah. yeah it's 60th out of 67th episodes is uh you know that's uh for most shows that would be a that would be a real thumbs down but uh if you're one of your worst episodes is like a b plus it's the mark of a, a really top-notch series yeah all right well great stuff josh of course uh we'll be back with episode number four coming up next week on tuesday we've got a couple of options here for a hashtag uh okay let's hear them hashtag snooty snow uh-huh uh hashtag was it take the black sheep or castle black sheep uh i think it was take the black take sheep. the black sheep and then also uh hashtag eye of mccumber uh i i mean it's the eye of mccumber i think you gotta go there yeah. i think that's what we gotta do here uh, i feel like that you just uh didn't go all the way there i felt like uh, i was ready uh, ready for uh, uh, five verses of eye of mccumber Maybe uh, maybe in the, the the throners for season one that we'll do retroactively. Uh, maybe the Eye of McCumber will show up. All right. Looking forward to that. Eye of McCumber uh, by the band Survivor. So very exciting <laughs> to see how that plays yes. out. All right. Uh, Josh, of course, we've got a lot going on on the uh, post-show recaps right now between the premiere of Star Trek Discovery, which I spoke about on Sunday night with Jeremiah Panhorst, also uh, Fear the Walking Dead 
coverage as well. So uh, a lot of stuff happening. And also you and Jim Gibbons talked about the state of the Marvel Netflix universe as well on PostShowRecaps.com. Yeah, we were doing, uh, we, we delivered on a Marvel Netflix feedback podcast, something Kevin Mahadeo could never pull off. Uh, so Jim already gets points in that column for me. Uh, we are also using that as our opportunity to plant the flag that the Punisher is coming, Rob. Uh, the Punisher is coming to Marvel Netflix at some point in the near future, before the end of 2017. But Netflix is being very purposely vague about when exactly to expect the series. So Jim and I are on standby. We've got a plan in place. We're going to do a binging Billy run through the Punisher. We are going to do one podcast for the premiere. Then we are going to watch the entirety of the Punisher and we will do one podcast to wrap it all up. And that's going to happen as soon as the Punisher drops. We will clear our schedules. We will make time. We will have it all happen. We will be completely ready. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, Punishment is coming. Punishment is coming. All right. So make sure you're following Josh Wiggler at Round Howard, everything that he's doing for The Hollywood Reporter as well. Of course, I'm at Rob Sisternino. If you want to make sure you subscribe to the podcast as well to not miss any of our weekly Game of Thrones rewatches, you can go to postshowrecaps.com slash G-O-T iTunes. And as always, we look forward to reading your comments on postshowrecaps.com. And of course, if you want to send your emails in, G-O-T at postshowrecaps.com. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.